This is Tanakh. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. So, this week's portions, chapters 12 through 15, there's a lot of movement from Haran to Kna'an, in and around Kna'an, from Kna'an to Egypt, back from Egypt to Kna'an, and again in and around Kna'an. It's no coincidence the Torah portion that begins with uh, our Tanakhcast portion is entitled Lech Lecha, or as Fox renders it in his translation, Go you forth. So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? In between all that moving around, there is a famine which forces Avram to head south to Egypt, where before crossing the border, he tells Sarai to tell anyone who asks that they are brother and sister, not husband and wife. Well, as expected, the Egyptians note Sarai's beauty, a prized pharaoh, and she's whisked away to the palace. Avram, in the meantime, is compensated well, but God smites Pharaoh and his household with great plagues. Pharaoh, through some amazing feat of deduction, calls out Avram for his deception and has both Avram and Sarai escorted out of the country. Heading back to Canaan, now exceedingly heavily laden with livestock, with silver and with gold, Avram seeks a spot to finally establish his household, but, quote, the land could not support both his and Lot's expanding household, quote, for their property was so great that they were not able to settle together. So, Avraham lets Lot choose, and Lot heads east to the Jordan Valley, and Avram heads north into Canaan to eventually settle near the oaks of Mamre near Hebron. But not before God tells him that all the land, as far as he can see, will eventually belong to him and his descendants, which is a problem as Avram is childless. Chapter 14 is preoccupied with neighborhood politics and scuffling between local potentates. When Sodom and Amorah are defeated, Lot is taken hostage, and Avram comes to the rescue. But... He refuses to take any of the spoils of war from the king of Sodom, quote, so that you should not say, I made Avram rich. This portion concludes with Avram's bitter rejoinder to God that promises of children are not the same as children, whereby God commands him to vivisect a calf, a she-goat, and a ram, and merely kill the turtle dove and fledgling, and keep the vultures away from the carcasses. And then God reiterates his promise of making Avram into a great nation, who will be enslaved in a foreign land, liberated and eventually returned to assume their place in Canaan, with its borders broadly spelled out and the list of peoples his descendants will dispossess enumerated. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's selection. Let's get to it. This week, I'm going to talk about heroes and liars, vivisected animals, free will, and time travel. Yep, time travel. If one thought about the Tanakh as the story of the Jewish people, one would not be wrong. It is about the Jewish people, but it didn't begin with the grand narratives of a God-chosen people. The Tanakh begins with the travails of one person, then one family, as we saw in the early chapters of Genesis with Adam and Noah, and after the begettings and a reboot and some more divine retribution, we now begin with another family drama. Meet Avram, son of Terach, brother of Haran and Nahor, his half-sister and wife Sarai, and Lot, or Lot, his, the son of Haran, his nephew. Though we tend not to think of Adam and Noah as heroes, but as figures out of a mythic time, the patriarchs and matriarchs, especially Avraham and Sarai, are, are, are generally venerated 
as unassuming yet heroic figures. From this chapter in Genesis, pretty much until the end of Chronicles 2, we are presented with figures to be admired, emulated for their achievements, for their fortitude and their integrity. But these figures, these heroes, are anything but perfect. In fact, the heroes of the Tanakh are deeply flawed individuals, everyone without exception, which makes their achievements, their fortitude, and their integrity achievable for us. I can't be Superman, and I can't fly through the air or deflect bullets with my pecs, but I can be Avraham, who is tested continually by God. Avraham, a man who remains steadfast in his beliefs. Avraham, a man who acted on his faith. And Avraham, a man who was a big, fat liar. Yes, Avraham, the father of all the Jews and Muslims, was a big, fat liar. And, and though it seems that God tolerates Avram's barefaced lying, he does not. But there is another thing that is fairly consistent in the book of Genesis thus far. When humans sin, God punishes. Here's a quick recap. Adam and the woman ate from the tree of knowing good and evil. Expulsion. Kind killed Hevel. Banishment. The people of Babel attempt to build a tower. Semantic ambiguity and confusion. And now Avram lies like a cheap rug and um, riches. Well, perhaps, well, hmm, maybe since there's no divine punishment, one might understand that Avram didn't lie. Often men refer to their wives as sisters. Ancient Egyptian love poetry also referred to beloved women as sisters. So did the Song of Songs. So maybe no lie. But then again, Avram is aware of what he's asking Sarai to do and what it might mean for him. Pay close attention to what he says. For those of you who don't remember from last week, I'd like to bring back Lee, our computer voice, to read this selection from the book of Genesis. It will be, when the Egyptians see you and say, she is his wife, that they will kill me, but you they will allow to live. Pray say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me on your account, that I myself may live thanks to you. Avram is aware of what he's asking, and he's aware of that if he does nothing, Sarai will live and he will die. So he opts for plan B, where he will live and Sarai will be left to her own devices. And what's more, if he abandons Sarai in, in this fashion, he'll profit from it. In the end, God steps in and executes plan C, whereby Avram abandons Sarai and profits from the deed then God afflicts Paro's house with a plague. Sarai is released, and still Avram gets to keep the cash. So where is the divine punishment? Perhaps in the latter half of our portion, otherwise known as the covenant of the pieces. We might find some hint as to when God will punish Avram for his deception. But first, God has to reward Avram some more, or at least ease Avram's concerns about the future and dying without any kids. And so chapter 15 proceeds with the description of God's rather strange request to Avram. Fetch me a calf of three, a she-goat of three, a ram of three, a turtle dove, and a fledgling. This will not be the last strange request God makes of Avram. I mean, photographs, he asked him knowingly. Avram does as asked, but then halves the animals down the middle, except for the birds. And then Avram spends considerable time shooing away the vultures, which would indicate that the vivisections took place in the daylight hours, because, though I'm no vulture expert, I do recall that they, like most birds, have poor eyesight at night. Nevertheless, one supposes Avram engaged in some other kind of nocturnal policing because verse 12 reports that, quote, as the sun was coming in, a deep slumber fell upon him. 
It is at this point that God appears to Avram and reiterates his commitment to providing an heir. In fact, God does more than that. He goes on to, pro to project what will happen to Avram's heirs over the next half a millennium or so. Avram will have a child who will have children. And they will sojourn in the land, not theirs, where they will be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years by a nation that God will eventually punish, at which point Avram's descendants will leave that foreign land with great property and return to Canaan. Hmm, that story sounds really familiar. The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. And in a typical ancient Middle Eastern fashion, the covenant signer, that is God, passes in between the pieces in the form of a smoking oven, a fiery torch, to signify that he commits to the terms of the contract and will face vivisection himself if in any way, shape, or form he breaks the deal. This spoiler-filled covenant brings him some rather sticky philosophical issues and clearly aligns the Tanakh in what I call the Star Trek school of time travel. Now, before you leave angry comments on the Facebook page asserting that the Star Trek school actually advocates six different theories of time travel, what I mean by the Star Trek school is the attitude expressed in Star Trek IV when Kirk sells the antique glasses he received as a gift from, Mr. from Dr. McCoy in Star Trek II. When, when Spock advises that Kirk is selling a birthday present, Kirk comments that the beauty of it is that there'll be a gift again. In other words, there is a single fixed history which is self-consistent and unchangeable. Incidentally, I'll, I'll link to that piece in io9 about the six theories on the Facebook page after all the hate comments. Though the time traveler cannot change anything in the timeline, according to this rule, she can be the cause of events in her own past, which is known as the predestination paradox. There are many examples of this paradox, but here's one from the classics. Lias hears a prophecy that his son will kill him and marry his wife. Fearing the prophecy, Laius pierces the newborn feet and leaves him out to die. But a herdsman finds the, boy, the baby and takes him away from Thebes. The baby, now known as Oedipus, not knowing he was adopted, leaves home in fear of the same prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother. Laius, meanwhile, ventures out to find a solution to the Sphinx's riddle. As prophesied, Oedipus crosses paths with a wealthy man, leading to a fight in which Oedipus kills him. Unbeknownst to Oedipus, the man is Laius. Oedipus then defeats the Sphinx by solving a mysterious riddle to become king, at which point he marries the widow queen, Jocasta, not knowing that she is his mother. Follow that? In each case, Laius and Oedipus are the cause for the fulfillment of the prophecies about them, which brings up some interesting philosophical questions, which I will address momentarily. The other rule of time travel, by the way, is what I call the Terminator School, which is history is flexible and is subject to change. In other words, Arnold Schwarzenegger can come back in time, kill Sarah Connor, and thus prevent the birth of John Connor, the leader of humanity's efforts to resist Skynet. But if Kyle Reese comes back in time a little later to thwart Arnold Schwarzenegger and in the process impregnate Sarah Connor, John Connor will be born and grow up to lead humanity's fight against Skynet. Follow that? Although the second rule is much more suspenseful, the first rule has profound philosophical implications, especially for Avram, but more importantly for Pharaoh hundreds of years down the line. And Cecil B. DeMille and Maxwell House and all the Tanakh adherents who subscribe to the principle of fairness of divine punishment. In other words, how can God punish a transgressor who has no free will? Here's what I mean. If we have free will, then we humans can choose whether we follow God's instructions. If we do, God rewards us. If we don't and transgress the commandments, God will punish us. If we do not have free will, 
then we are programmed to behave in a certain way. This is what folks today would call biological determinism, or some Christians would call predestination, in which case God's judgment of each individual is all preordained. There's no human agency, just role-playing. In time travel terms, if I am in a single self-consistent timeline and travel a few minutes back in time, once I decide to enter the time machine and travel back in time, there is no way for me to change my mind because in a moment, according to the consistency of the timeline, I will meet myself, which means that I surely entered the time machine and traveled back a few moments and set into motion the chain of events that resulted in me meeting my double, etc., etc., etc. So if God tells Avram that his descendants will descend to, spoiler alert, Egypt and be enslaved for 400 years, whereby God will afflict Egypt until they release Avram's progeny, who will then return to Canaan to dispossess its inhabitants, does, Far does Paro have a choice in the matter? Can God justifiably punish Egypt for not letting the Hebrews go when that is what Pharaoh is supposed to do? You know, I'd raised a similar question in episode two in relation to, to Adam the woman and the ability to choose in a world unknowing of good and evil. But in that case, as here, individuals do have a choice. Much of mainstream Judaism rejects this notion of predestination, but does not solely embrace free will as it would limit God's power over and knowledge of humanity. As in, if we are truly, truly free, we can act in a way that God does not expect. We can surprise God. Unpredictability, not knowledge, is power. Traditional Judaism charts a middle course, best expressed in a dictum in Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, quote, everything is determined and freedom is given. Not but freedom is given and freedom is given. These two paradoxical concepts are set up as complements. God has already crunched all the variables and worked out all the scenarios, but humans choose their own path. And for the purpose of our story and the doctrine of divine punishment, if they choose the right path, they're in for a reward. There is also another more prosaic solution to this biblical time traveler's paradox. The authors of the Torah knew all about Egyptian bondage, exodus, and desert wandering, and fortunately for them, they did not know about Manashevitz and Crispios. And when they sat down to write the exchange between God and Avram and the cutting of this covenant, they already knew how every loose end would be tied up. What reads as future is actually long past, which means that Paro decided to keep Hebrews enslaved. It was an economic choice too good to pass over. And according to later portions of the Torah, it brought down the wrath of God upon his whole nation. In other words, there is no predestination, just plot development. Granted, the solution is not as sexy as the Novikov self-consistency principle, but it does the trick for now. As always, you can leave comments at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com in the comments section. You can also subscribe to Tanakhcast at iTunes and leave a comment there as well. We'll be back in a week or so with Tanakhcast about Genesis 16 through 19. Hope you'll join us then. Y'all come back now. Yeah.